podcast is brought to you by New Hope Baptist Church. For more information, visit the website newhope.net.au or follow us on social media. Well, good morning, New Hope, and welcome to the second week in our new sermon series, Life in the Spirit. As we reflect together on three significant themes, new human beings, new creation, and new communities. This morning, we continue to explore the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, forming us into new human beings, as we read together from Romans chapter 8. This reading follows directly on from where Alan left us off last week when he talked about the one gospel that heals and the many individual stories of healing in the journey of faith. So let's open our hearts and our minds as we read together Romans 8 verses 5 to 8. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Well, here Paul situates the one gospel with many stories within the reality of our shared struggle. There is one gospel, a gift from God that saves and heals and brings wholeness, and this one gospel impacts our lives in many and varied ways, producing many and varied stories. And this good gospel and these many stories rise up in the midst of a shared struggle, a struggle that is at the centre of what it means to be human. You see, the gospel is only good news if it's a powerful, robust and definitive answer to a pressing problem. And that problem is the predicament human beings find themselves in. Well, what predicament is that? Paul says it's the predicament of sin and death. It is the way our sinful nature causes us to set our minds, to orient our lives, to direct our efforts and our energies towards what our sinful natures desire. And when we follow those sinful desires to their logical conclusion, Paul says, they all lead to the same place, death. Paul sharpens this thought to a point in verse 6 when he says, The mindset of sin is death. I want to spend a few moments unpacking just what that means before turning towards the mindset Paul is exhorting us to adopt, a mindset controlled by the spirit that brings life and peace. So the one good gospel with its many stories rises up in the midst of a shared struggle And this struggle is the human predicament of sin and death. And over time, different strains of Christian thought have sought to explain this relationship between sin and death. This is one of those chicken and egg kind of questions. Is it sin that causes death or is it death that causes sin? But when we hold the Bible in our hands 
and ask that question, we find the answer is yes. Sin causes death and yes, death causes sin. Of those two statements, the easiest one I think to get your head around is that sin causes death because we understand this literally, that a whole raft of choices we make can lead to our premature shortening of our lives, not to mention the choices that other people can make to shorten our lives. But we also understand this more figuratively, that we can make choices that rob our lives of vitality, choices that bring pain and difficulty and darkness into our lives and leave us feeling dead on the inside. Paul puts it like this in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. If we practice sinful ways, we will reap a deathly paycheck. This is the primary way that I grew up understanding the relationship between sin and death, that sin is a kind of moral corruption, a taint that we're born with. It's it's a stain we inherit that we can never wash out. And this stain mars and marks and deforms our entire lives. So, yes, sin causes death. That death causes sin, I think, is kind of less intuitive but equally powerful. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that the sting of death is sin. Here he flips the causal relationship over and says that our mortality drives our immorality. It's death that causes us to sin. Well, okay, Paul, but exactly how does that work? Well, death entered the world through Adam and Eve, making a sinful choice. And as descendants of Adam and Eve, you and I have inherited this mortal condition. We are living creatures who have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Therefore, we're fully aware, self-determining moral agents walking around in these bodies that will one day fall apart. You see, we are born dying. And this awareness, this anxiety, enslaves us to the fear of death. But the challenge is that for most of us, most of the time, we don't really feel it. Like, I'm pretty certain that this morning you didn't wake up thinking, oh no, I'm one more sleep closer to death. We have so successfully pushed death to the edges of our cultural consciousness that death is really something we rarely talk about. Not too long ago, we would have been born in the home and we would have died at home. And our bodies would have been laid out for friends and family and neighbours to come and see and visit and spend time with and say goodbye right in our homes. But we've successfully pushed death out of our homes We now die in hospitals and we hold funerals without the dead bodies. Well, we don't spend a lot of time directly thinking about death. I wonder if I suggested that that anxiety that you feel, that it is an expression of your fear of death. Having eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we have the capacity to think infinite thoughts and make infinite plans. But having been denied by God the fruit from the tree of life, 
we are stuck in the tension of longing for eternity and the limits of our finitude. I mean, if this life was forever, my goodness, how great that would be. We could spend 100 years doing one thing and the next 100 years doing another, and that would be so much fun because we'd never have to choose. We could take our time and we could literally do it all. But each of us, each one of us is given just an average of 4,000 weeks. Just 4,000 weeks. And we know it. And the knowledge of how little time we have produces within us two kinds of anxiety. Survival anxiety and self-esteem anxiety. Survival anxiety is the anxiety that we have about having our needs met. Like, will we have enough food? Will we get a good job that pays a decent wage? Will we find a partner to share life with and a home to raise a family in? Will our kids go to the right schools? Will we have enough to retire on comfortably? Survival anxiety fuels our selfishness. We call it looking after our own interests. It drives our competitiveness as we compete with those around us for what we perceive to be scarce resources. And this causes us to live our lives in a mindset of scarcity. We become perpetual bookkeepers, hypervigilantly tallying up the columns of the things that we think we need, fretting about the things we don't yet have. Self-esteem anxiety is about living a life of meaning and significance in the face of death. I mean, we want our lives to count. We want to make a difference in the world. We want to leave a legacy. We want to face, we want to, in the face of death, we want, we don't want everything that we've ever done to just simply be washed away and to be completely forgotten. And this causes us to focus on achievement and recognition. We set specific goals, we focus on overcoming obstacles and creating value and maximising our impact and striving for perfection. And what's wrong with that? Well, it too causes us to live in a mindset of scarcity. Instead of lacking the resources we think we need, we lack the self-esteem that comes from meaning and significance. And everywhere we look, there are people who have more And there are people whose lives are more. And the world slowly divides itself into winners and losers. And we spend a great deal of time feeling like we're failures. Brene Brown describes this perfectly in her book, Daring Greatly, when she talks about the shame-based fear of being ordinary. Ordinary is not what we grow up hoping to become. I mean, if you live and you die being ordinary, did you even really live? Being ordinary in our culture is something that we fear. If you don't believe me, just have a look at social media. Social media is the ultimate performance theatre. It leverages so precisely our fears that we are not being enough. Survival anxiety and self-esteem anxiety. These are our contemporary manifestations of the fear of death. And it's this fear 
that stands in the way between us and holiness. Because the busyness of securing resources and propping up our self-esteem, my goodness, it's, it's a never-ending project that demands everything we have and all that we are. It's a form of slavery. Paul writes in Hebrews 2, the fear of death is the power of the devil in our lives. It is this thing that trips us up and causes us to sin because it enslaves us to deathly desires that lead us away from God and the life that God wants us to have. So yes, death causes us to sin. So the one good gospel with its many stories rises up in the midst of a shared struggle. And this shared struggle with sin and death will set you on a path of chasing security and self-esteem every day of your life. It will form you in what Paul calls a sinful mind, which is hostile to God, that doesn't submit to God's law because it can't. I haven't been watching very much of the um, Olympics during this period, but I saw this wonderful clip of the Australian high jumper, Nicola McDermott. She was being interviewed on television and she gave this wonderful, powerful word of testimony about feeling as a young woman like she was a misfit, that when she was younger, uh, she was too tall, but she was welcomed into a community of faith and she had a profound encounter with God's love that completely changed her life. In 2007, she made a decision to pursue God over pursuing sport. She says her self-perception during that time totally shifted and she came to realise that she was already completely and perfectly loved by God and that whatever happened in her life by way of sporting success, well, it was just a bonus. She said in this interview that it was this that allowed me to soar over every high jump bar and not be scared anymore. Friends, this is what it means to set our minds on what the Spirit desires so we might experience life and peace. It's not that we have to give up wanting things. It's that we get set free from feeling like we need the things we want in order to be okay. And when we're set free from this delusion, suddenly a door opens and we're able to enjoy our lives in new and deeper ways. One of my favourite poets is Kay Ryan, and she writes this, Wherever the eye lingers, it finds a hunger. The things of this world want us for dinner. Inside each pebble or leaf or puddle is a hook. I think it's so easily easy to get hooked. We get hooked on being loved. We get hooked on being successful. Hooked on wanting to be unique or special. Hooked on knowledge. Hooked on security. Hooked on happiness. Hooked on control. We even get hooked on God when we turn God into our own personal genie in a bottle. There is only one way I know to get unhooked. And that's to begin again in an entirely different place, in an entirely different way.
And this is the way of surrendering to the love and the grace of God. Henry Nouwen once said that when we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. But the real trap, however, is self-rejection. Self-rejection is the hole that we dig and then try to fill up with all of those other things. Self-rejection is the perpetuation of the lie that we're worthless. And as such, it is the point of origin for a forest fire of sin and lies that lays waste to families and communities and nations. Jesus often repeated the well-known Jewish prayer, the Shema. He does it in Matthew and in Luke. You know this prayer. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. The part of that well-known verse that I think we often overlook, it's the last part, that you must love yourself. The capacity to love ourselves needs to be cultivated. It needs to be nurtured and developed as much as our love of God and our love of neighbour. Because without self-love, all of the other loves are at risk of being subordinated to the needs of the dark abyss of self-rejection. This is a pattern. This is an example that we see in the lives of Jesus. That before Jesus had done a day of public ministry, before he'd healed anyone or preached a single sermon or told a single parable, before he'd gathered a group of disciples and attracted crowds in their thousands, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove and God affirms his identity and proclaims his love over his beloved child. And this identity and this love is the place that then Jesus lives out of for the rest of his life. This is the rock Jesus built his life upon. This is the vine Jesus grafted his identity and his life into. This is the power that enabled Jesus to lay down his life and through his death destroy the power of death, therefore setting us free from the fear of death. So by the grace of God, we have been given an alternative to this anxiety fueled way of living. It's called living in accordance with the Spirit. Because there is one gospel with many stories that rise up in the midst of a shared struggle. And this shared struggle is with sin and death, but because of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, there is nothing left to fear. God's perfect love casts out all fear. And this, this is the root of peace. There is only one thing that God asks of us, that we be men and women who live close to God, people for whom God is everything and for whom God is enough. That is the root of peace. And we have that peace when we graciously allow God to be all we seek. When we, seek, when we start seeking something beside God, 
that's the moment that we lose it. So let us live in accordance with the spirit who brings life and who brings peace. And let us set our minds on what the spirit desires. When I think about this particular passage and this image of the spirit who brings life, there's this wonderful story I remember. A Gurkha rifleman escaped from a Japanese prison camp in the south of Burma and he walked 600 miles alone through the jungle to freedom. The journey took him over five months, but he never asked the way and he never got lost. For one thing, he couldn't speak Burmese, but for the other, he regarded the Burmese as traitors. He used a map and when he reached India, he showed it to the intelligence officers who wanted to know all about this extraordinary odyssey. Marked in pencil on the map were all the turns that he'd taken, all the roads and the trail forks that he'd passed, all the rivers he'd crossed. It had served him so well, that map. The intelligence officers didn't find it so useful because it was a street map of London. I love this story because all kinds of people will put maps into your hands, your family, your friends, the world we live in, and they will point at the maps and they will tell you where you should go and how you should get there. And that's all fine because even if you've got the wrong map, the right compass will get you home. It was the compass that enabled this man to make this extraordinary journey. And friends, the Holy Spirit is our compass. True life comes from understanding the compass, from using the compass. It doesn't come from the presence of a useful map. The Holy Spirit is moving in our lives like a compass, showing us the way that you sh we should go. And my prayer today is that you would follow the Spirit's lead. Each week during this sermon series, at the end of the sermon, we're going to have a time of reflection, a moment of response, when we pause and create some space for the Spirit of God to come. So I wonder wherever you are this morning, listening to this, if you just might create some space, get in a comfortable position, maybe you just want to put your hands out. And I want to invite you to open your heart and your mind up to the presence of the Holy Spirit. As we pray, come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Spirit, and show us the way that we should go. Come, Spirit, and be the compass in our life. Come, Spirit, and speak your peace and your love over our minds of anxiety.
God, we lay down all of our defences and all of the things that have led our focus away from you. God, we thank you for your living word that is speaking to your people right now by your spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. God, we pray that you would turn those of us who need to turn around and go in a new direction, that you would turn us around right now. Set us on a new path, God. God, we thank you that there is a deep peace in your presence, a peace that comes to us straight from the loving heart of God. Thank you for your steadfast love, God, that flows out across the world into our hearts and into our lives. God, help us to trust this love, to set our hearts and our minds towards it and fill us with your spirit, May we look to you today and all the days of our lives to know the way that we should go. For you are the wellspring of everything that is good. You are life, you are peace, you are hope, you are joy. And we welcome all of this into our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.